Welcome to episode 16 of the Various and Sundry podcast. I am your host, Matt Harmon, joined in virtual studio as always, or at least during these quarantine days, by my good friend, my co-host, and the man whose bachelor days are numbered, hmm. John Sloat. Doc, how you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How about you? I'm I'm doing well. Little little cooped up. I think uh, I think getting some uh, some what are they, they call that cabin fever being being stuck mm-hmm. inside the house all day. Yeah. But uh, but other than that, uh, doing doing all right. How about yourself? Yeah. Again, I think um, warmer weather, being able to get outside, uh, yeah. certainly helps. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it's one of those things where if I'm able to get outside a little bit, that, that definitely improves the mood and the the general morale of the Harmon house in terms of um, staying busy and not getting as stir crazy. But uh, yeah, we want to uh, certainly encourage you to reach out to us, connect with us on, uh, on Twitter. V and S pod is the Twitter handle. You can email the show, various and sundry podcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. And uh, we'd love for you to go ahead and leave us a rating. And if you feel so moved, uh, go ahead and throw us a review on, um, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you happen to be gaining our, uh, gaining our, uh, our podcast here, listening to our podcast. So... Um, again, we, we do this every week. We forget to kind of check in between, but uh, I'm not aware of any additional reviews or anything like that. I, so. I'm not either, and I'm a little disappointed because people are home. They have time. <laughs> they should be reviewing our podcast on that. Okay. All right. Well, you know, um, the views expressed by John Sloat are his <laughs> and his alone and are not necessarily the views of his co-host or Grace College and Theological Seminary, <laughs> which... That's true of both of our views. We should yeah. always be clear that we don't speak in any official capacity for Grace College and Theological Seminary. Nope, nope. So anyway, um, so um, last week we mentioned that the NBA was doing a uh, their horse competition and we expressed our sort of eh attitude towards it. Yeah. Of like, yeah, that's disappointing. So we're not going to spend a ton of time on this, but I feel like we should sort of wrap that bow up. Mike Conley did end up winning that competition. Which I think um, we learned that that beautiful gym he had was in Columbus, Ohio, right? Yes, did, did yes we, we did find that out after the fact, yes. So, um, and, uh, but really probably the biggest uh, sports news in, in the past week was the debut of the long-anticipated uh, documentary that ESPN has produced called The Last Dance, which is a 10-part documentary series that um, covers the final season of the Chicago Bulls championship run in uh, 1997 and 1998. And so ESPN is releasing two episodes per week on Sunday nights. So the first one was this past Sunday. So the next four Sundays, they'll release two episodes each. And then it's also available on Netflix uh, as well. And uh, this, was, this was intended to be launched in June right. because it was going to be a sort of uh, after the NBA season ends, there's a vacuum to some degree. 
Mm-hmm. And so ESPN thought this will be great. It's basketball related. Um, and so they were going to do this over the summer and they rushed the post-production to get it ready to launch here in April to, uh, to scratch that sports itch here in our quarantine days. And I, I actually heard f- uh, from the director and from the, 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 main, the main director say uh, that they're still working on the last few episodes. Like yeah. they, they have like the first six or so done in the can ready to go. But the last few they're still they're still working on, which is uh, uh, fascinating. Yeah, it, it it's really and I feel like this story um, is fascinating on multiple levels. And so I anticipate the next several episodes, since there is no live sports really to talk about, that we'll we'll be discussing uh, some of the different uh, things that we're noticing from this, but. Um, what what sort of general impressions have you had so far of this? Yeah, so uh, this this happened in my lifetime. It's about what the ninety seven ninety eight season. Yep. Um, and, Which means uh, you were what like eight nine? I was nine. I was nine. Uh, and so my family had recently moved from the New York area to South Carolina, and uh, I. I don't remember any of this going on. I remember the Bulls winning championships and I remember watching the finals, uh, but I don't remember any of the, um, the villain Jerry Krause, right? The general manager, <laughs> yeah. uh, which was a, you know, by all, me- by all accounts, a very good general manager, but a very unlikable guy um, by his players, at least. Yeah, he was, I think it's fair to say that he was a a terrific team builder. In other words, someone who was good at putting pieces together to assemble that team. Um, obviously, where he runs into trouble is that um, I think early, maybe in the first, like it felt like ten or fifteen minutes of episode one, uh, they they pointed out very clearly that um, he suffered from little man syndrome. Mm. Uh, in the sense of like wanting to prove himself because, you know, he's short, he's stocky, uh, he's not athletic. Um, he was the kid that was, you know, like you could just tell, like he was the kid in junior high and high school who wasn't popular, probably a little nerdy. And now he's literally hanging around these elite athletes. Um, and uh, yeah, you could just, I think you could even just tell, I don't think it's just the way they framed it. Uh, that there's definitely some of that going on of that kind of little man syndrome of wanting to prove himself that he really was you know, important and smart and the, the smartest guy in the room kind of thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in, in his defense, he's, he's no longer alive. He's, he's no longer able to defend himself. And uh, in the documentary, it doesn't feel like anybody is coming to his defense saying, well, he really built a fantastic team. And, you know, this was actually the right, you know, um, no, no one's really, that, that piece hasn't played up uh, quite as much, but um, I've, I've loved the documentary. I've loved hearing about Jordan's backstory, love hearing about Scotty coming out of Arkansas. Um, and I, uh, you know, some of the old, some of the old news clips have been, uh, have been excellent as well. Uh, seeing Bob Costas hair. Oh my goodness. Yes. Uh, was fantastic. And then, uh, and then I, I think two of my favorite things, uh, were um, they interviewed uh, Barack Obama uh, for the documentary. And so in interviewing Barack Obama, they're talking to him about the Bulls. His tagline is Barack Obama, 
former Chicago resident. Yeah. Um, under, <laughs> underneath his name. Because that's just, what he's most no, no, known for, yes. That's true. <laughs> but he also did something else. Um, and, then, and then when they were doing Scottie Pippen, um, they, uh, they, and, and Scottie Pippen went to an NAIA school, uh, this really small, I think it's Arkansas State maybe. Uh, Central Arkansas, University that's, of Central Arkansas. Yeah, University of Central Arkansas. And they're inter- they, all of a sudden, Bill Clinton pops up on the interview. Yeah. And it says, former uh, governor of Arkansas. And you're just like, come on. The governor of Arkansas is not going to an NAIA basketball game, you know? And, uh, you know, I, I, just, I just found those three things uh, very, very funny. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it was uh, pretty striking, uh, back to the Jerry Krause thing, um, I, I do think you can, um, I, I do think his ego got the best of him when it comes to breaking that team up. Mm. Because I think if you talk to, all, you know, and this is starting to come out from, from Phil Jackson, from Michael, from, from Pippen, from, from all the, all the ones that they've highlighted so far, Steve Kerr, that yes, they were getting older, but there was still a sense of, we there's another championship or two potentially in that group, maybe not consecutively, but you know, I think they could have run another two or three years with basically that core in place. And um, I think Jerry Krause um, is understandably vilified for breaking up the greatest sports dynasty of the decade. Right. Yeah. You know, and so, and, and part of it, I think, was fed by his ego. It was fed by his, um, I want to prove that I'm the reason that this, this thing works. I'm the guy that built the team. Um, and, you know, I, I, I do think there, there was one clip where um, he was alleged to have said, you know, players don't win championships, organizations do. And so, of course, he was vilified for that. But then they showed an interview clip with Jerry Krause, who later said, uh, actually, the journalist who put that left out the word only. In other words, um, play, our players alone don't mm-hmm. win championships. Organizations do. Coaches, support staff, all of that kind of stuff. So there was a little bit of pushback there. But um, it, was, uh, it was almost uncomfortable to see the extent to which the players teased Jerry Krause. Yeah. And I've heard in, I've heard in interviews uh, because in the documentary, they have Jordan go, Hey Jerry, you want to, you want to get in the layup line? We can lower the rim. Yeah. Um, Saying saying those sorts of things. I've also heard that Jordan called Jerry crumbs uh, (laughs) just regularly because he had, he had crumbs from his lunch perpetually like on his shirt. (laughs) So Jordan called him crumbs. Yeah. Well, and, but, I mean, the way it sounded, though, with Jordan, it was, like, it felt a little closer to lighthearted. The, the way that they presented Pippin was, like, over the top, just, like, crazy mean to the point where, you know, you have Phil Jackson saying, we had to approach Scotty and say, you, you, you got to back off. Yeah, you gotta back off because you're just getting over the top, um, cruel, and it, th- this is this is becoming a big problem. 
Yeah. And one thing I, you know, when I was nine years old, I wasn't thinking about NBA contracts, but um, hearing that Scotty signed a seven year contract uh, for, I think it was 30 million over seven 18. years, 18. 18, which by NBA standards just is not very much. No, um, even, even back, even back then it wasn't a, a huge contract. Um, and so I, like, I understand Scotty signing that contract in his second year wanting to, uh, have some financial security, but you know, goodness, looking at the player he became, he he did not get paid during that Bulls dynasty. Right. Though, in fairness, they interviewed Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner of the Bulls, and, and he, he told says, him not to take "Don't the sign that contract." Like, so you know, it's how yeah. often do you have an owner telling a player, "Don't sign this contract. It's a bad deal for you." Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, at the same time, like, I, they, they, they filled in the backstory enough for, like, you know, Scottie Pippen's coming from, from, from not abject poverty, but, like, poverty, basically. He's got, what, eight siblings, something like that. Mm-hmm. He's got a – he had a dad who was in a wheelchair. He had a bro- – who, who had suffered a major stroke. He had a brother who was paralyzed from some sort of wrestling accident or something. So – you can understand how the the guaranteed money would be something that it would be hard for him to turn down. Oh yeah. Um, instead of sort of doing the kind of typical NBA player thing of like, well, I'll sign a two or three year contract and then I'll play my way to a bigger deal down the road. Like you can understand when he's thinking, this is my chance to guarantee that my family is lifted out of poverty. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah, totally, totally understandable. But um, yeah, I did, I did think it was interesting that the owner came to him and said, don't take it. Yeah. Well, we need to move on because our our main topic for the day is uh, even potentially more uh, substantive and going to be tricky to now cover in a brief span of time. But uh, this past week would have been the together for the gospel conference that uh, you and I faithfully attend every other year when it's put on. Yep. And uh, obviously because of uh, COVID-19, they had to do a live streamed event. And um, I don't know how many of the different messages that you ended up getting to listen to. I probably listened to, I want to say three, maybe four Mm. of the messages. Yeah. I was just one. I, I think I just listened to the one, the one that we're about to discuss. Yeah, so um, the, the probably the obviously the one that that we've chosen to highlight is the one by John Piper, and um, I, I think this is one of those things where it I, I know as I listened to this message, I found myself feeling uncomfortable, mm-hmm. in part because um, I really like John Piper. I have benefited immensely from his, from his ministry, from his writing, um, from his preaching. And so uh, it's really uncomfortable when you're listening to someone you greatly and deeply admire and find yourself thinking, I really disagree with him. And mm-hmm. I disagree with him on something that is actually relatively near and dear to my own heart when it comes to what he was talking about. So uh, I've teed it up for you. What, um, 
g- give me some of your experience uh, in in sort of listening to this Piper message. Yeah, I I think I think the the first thing I the first thing I noticed that came out of his uh, message a little bit was uh, that he had a very long title to his message, right? Um, yeah. Which, which is pretty typical, I think, for T4G. They, they, they tend to make them quite long. I can't remember the exact uh, name of it, but, but he went down and, and began by breaking down what, what the title was and making a point to say that he did not choose the title, but the title was given to him. Yeah, it was something like um, preaching the gospel uh, from the whole Bible or from every text or something like that. And it was from, yeah, the, from, from, from the whole Bible, wasn't it? Yeah, from the whole council of God's word, or so you know, it was just it was just too many words. Yeah, um, and and his basic thrust, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna uh, say, is is that he when he preaches does not intend, does not see the end goal to preach the gospel, but to understand uh, the words and phrases as they relate to themselves. Um, yeah, is that fair? Yeah, I think um, he uses the term. Uh, controlling question mm-hmm. so he says uh the question the, the question how do i preach the gospel from every text should not be the controlling question when you prepare to preach instead that controlling question should be what do the words phrases clauses connecting particles etc mean in this text that that mm-hmm. that that's the contrast that he sort of draws there and and he seemed to be pushing back on a on a culture of moving too quickly to preaching the gospel in a sermon, like 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 uh, glossing over, not doing the Greek and Hebrew work, not doing the cultural understanding work, and just driving straight to the gospel. And and I think that's a very fair pushback. Um, which uh, what, what, do you do you have thoughts on that? Do you see that in preaching uh, today? Yeah, I think that um, he used the expression, uh, some gospel-centered preaching or Christ-centered preaching hovers lightly above the text, rather than digging into the actual text itself. And so, um, I think that's probably fair. I'm sure that there is that out there. Um, I personally haven't seen a lot of it in my own experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think, you know, again, this is where it's appropriate to have some measure of self-reflection. Um, I don't think I do that. Yeah. Um, I, I, I am committed to preaching the gospel from every text. Um, but I don't think that I am guilty of what he is, um, correcting or trying to correct. Now, again, I could be wrong. Um, but uh, yeah, he's he's certainly trying to push back on a sort of surface level engagement with the text, and then the um, let's run, let's you know he he plays on the Spurgeon quote that no one really knows if he said right the whole uh, make a beeline to the cross you know take your mm-hmm. text and make a beeline to the cross, um, and so I think he's trying to trying to push back on that. Um, but I did have one quote that I wanted to uh, to throw out there. I think that this kind of summarized his biggest concern. Um, I, I don't remember what point he says this in the message, but 
Um, I, I, I listened to it probably multiple times to make sure I, I got the wording correct so I could accurately quote John here. Uh, he said, quote, I don't think that the controlling question, how can I preach the gospel from this text over the last 40 years or so, has produced the kind of preaching that makes for strong, Bible-saturated, doctrinally rich, mature, stable, countercultural churches with a passion for radical obedience to God's word. Mm. End quote there. So that to me just kind of captured the, the heart of what he's getting at in terms of um, his pushback on this kind of preaching. Um, so, uh, maybe, maybe, um, now could, so one of the things he, he said regularly was instead of make instead of taking the text and making a beeline to the cross, you start at the cross and make a beeline to the text. Um, he said that probably four or five times. Yep. What, what's the difference? <laughs> Um, in, in, in your understanding, what's, what's, uh, a, a little bit of the difference. Cause I, I think I see what he's saying, but, but I'm not, I'm not totally certain. Yeah. I, I'm going to do my best. Um, again, it's always ch- risky to, to try to unpack what someone else says. Um, and just as a side note, um, I, I did have a, a hard time at points following, what Piper was doing in this message. It didn't feel like it was as sort of tightly and coherently organized at points. Mm-hmm. So I, I, and, and that could just be my failure to follow. But um, I think what he's trying to say is that the cross in particular is the central starting point, the foundational assumption from which everything else flowed from the biblical authors. So that instead of trying to work your way to the cross from a text, what you're doing is um, you're assuming the foundation of the cross and trying to understand how is it that what this text commands or promises is rooted in what God has done through Jesus on the cross. Which um, I think there's 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 obviously truth there. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, I think that there's there's some value in um, in thinking of it that way. Um, let me just add um, one more point of summary before we kind of dig in and, and express some of our uh, pushback or concerns. Um, I've got one more quote here. He says, uh, "This is towards the end." Uh, instead of preaching biblical imperatives as pointers to Christ's perfection and imputed righteousness, I think we should preach imputed righteousness as the power to obey biblical imperatives. Mm-hmm. And so just to try to unpack what he's saying there, he is uh, critical of an approach that, let's say you're in a text, and he used the example of um, uh Hospitality. Pursue, right? pursue hospitality, yeah, right? Yeah. Out of Romans 12. Um, <clears throat> and uh, actually, well, actually, no, he used another example out of 1 Peter 4 uh, that would be closer to this point, where he basically, you know, talks about self-control, being sober-minded in prayer, all those sorts of things. And he says, 
what I'm concerned about is the kind of preaching that sort of barely touches on what those things are and then rushes to basically, um, isn't it great that Jesus obeyed, that Jesus was perfectly self-controlled on the way to the cross, that he, show, he was sober-minded in prayer in, in the garden, and that he, you know, that, that highlights that and then never, um, never calls the, the listener to actually obey themselves. Hmm. And so um, that's, the, that's the critique that he's offering there. Um, so I, I think at this point, I, I hope we've done enough to summarize what he's getting at so we can maybe give some pushback uh, at, at points here. But um, maybe before we do that, anything that you wanted to affirm and say, I think he's right about this, or this is, this is a point that, that needs to be heard. Yeah, um, I, I think... I, yeah, I, th- I think some things to affirm. I, I, I think there, there probably are people out there that, you know, lightly hover over the text and make a beeline for, for the cross uh, too quickly. Um, now we'll get th- into this in pushbacks. I don't, I don't think that's something that we need to get rid of totally, right? I, I just think we need to uh, be more uh, saturated in the, in the verse-by-verse uh, sort of text. Um, but, uh, I think, I think he is advocating in part for a careful reading and careful observation of the scripture. And and that's, that's something I can really, really get behind. Um, Yes. So, so absolutely. Uh, I think that I would just echo that in terms of, um, the, uh, there is a danger when you're so excited about trying to preach Christ from different texts that um that you don't do the work in the text and the the very um the very real danger that comes from this is that uh it feels tacked on or it feels like it's just something that's added rather than a natural outflow of what's in the text itself and it can feel very almost um uh, mystical, you know, I know the text says this, but poof, here's Jesus. Yeah. Here's the gospel right out of the, you know, right out of the thin air where you're like, how did you get there? So I, I think that, um, his affirmation there was, was, uh, or his, his critique there is helpful as well as I think, and this is something that others I think disagree with, but I would, I would agree with, with Piper here. I am more in favor of the preacher showing his work than some are. Meaning Hmm. I think there's a degree to which the preacher should help the listener understand how you got there and making connections. And this isn't just when it comes to, um, you know, making the move to Christ in a tech, in a, in a, in a sermon. It, it, It involves, I think, trying to help people see, wait a minute, why do you think that's the main point of the text? Oh, because this word is repeated several times. And because in, in Greek, you know, this clause relates this way, or, you know, the overall narrative flow of this Hebrew, uh, of this Hebrew Old Testament passage works this way to highlight this. Like, I think uh, it's good for preachers to show a little bit of their work. They don't have to show every detail. Like I, you, you don't want to make it an exegetical lecture. Sure. But um 
you need you need to provide two or three points in order to, to to sort of give a give a sense of this is how we've arrived at this conclusion. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and, and I would I would add to that. I, I tell my my students this is um, the way you teach and the way you preach uh, does give the people you are preaching to and teaching uh, a, a way to read the Bible, uh, whether absolutely. they know it or not. Um, and so, if we are simply just making jumps and moves all over the place. We're not, we're not giving people a, a way to read the Bible that's, that's slow, wise in the text. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, let's talk, about, uh, let's talk about some areas of pushback. What are some, some places where uh, we did not agree with Piper or um, at least wanted to maybe just nudge back and say, well, wait a minute, what about this? Yeah, I, I think the first that comes to mind um, is I, I think uh, his, his talk works works really well in a letter. Where um, it works really well uh, in Paul's letters, particularly breaking down the words, breaking down the phrases, uh, understanding them. Uh, I think it struggles a bit more in narrative, um, yep. and so I think I think that's one of the ways that I've found uh, gospel center preaching really helpful. Uh, toward preaching Old Testament narrative um, rather than having them be uh, like, like when I was growing up to the Old Testament to me was basically uh, moral lessons of, of do-goodism. Um, and, yep. and I think gospel center preaching really gives us uh, a bit more, uh, a bit more force behind those Old Testament narratives. So uh, yeah. that's, that's one critique. I agree. I think that um, really, I think in one sense, there's kind of two, there's two critiques in that statement you made there. One is the issue of genre. Mm -hmm. um, and the other issue is uh, Old Old Testament versus New Testament. That um, there absolutely is a sense in which uh, if you're in a New Testament epistle and there's a command, you need to explain to the listeners, you are called to obey this. Mm -hmm. God demands that you do this or not do this. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But it's not that simple in the Old Testament. Yeah. There, there's a there's a larger um sort of redemptive historical canonical process that takes place that you have to filter through and think through. How does this command that God gives to Israel under a different covenant apply to me today as a believer under the new covenant? Mm -hmm. that, that it's not just a simple, you know, God says do this, so do this when you're reading the old Testament, it's not that, um, simplistic. And I think that, I mean, I know he understands that. I just think he could have done more to, uh, to recognize that or maybe nuance that a bit. Um, I, I think another, uh, critique that, that uh, I've, that just kind of re resonated with me in terms of thinking this through was it felt like there were too many, either ors when there are both ands in yeah. terms of this, in terms of what he's doing. So a, a lot of his critique, I would say, yeah, I think there's an element of caution there that, that all of us should hear. The problem is there was not a, the, the, the problem is that the way it was framed was often a, not this, but that. When I wanted to say, not just that, but also that. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, uh, 
you know, I read the quote a few minutes ago about, you know, preaching biblical imperatives about not doing that as just pointers to Christ's obedience and, uh, and, and using that as a, isn't, isn't it just great that Christ obeyed for us? Um, I want to say, do that and then say, okay, Christian, you have the risen Christ by his spirit empowering you now to obey. So go obey yeah. in the power yeah. of the spirit. It's, it's not it's an a, either it's or. A, yes. It's a both. And, and what I find is if you don't do both, you, you, you get into this, you, you have this, this sort of uh, extreme here, right? So if you just talk about, isn't it great that Jesus obeyed and, um, and then you don't talk about your call to obedience, you, you're creating people who are basically, who give into license. Oh, pff, I can do whatever I want. That command doesn't really apply to me. Yeah. On the other end, if you don't, if you just talk about Christian, do this. And don't talk about Christ has already perfectly obeyed for you. You drive people, at least certain people, to despair yeah. because they realize, I can't do that. So I must not be a good Christian. And so you, people live with this sort of guilt of, well, gosh, I can't do that. And there, there's no hope of the gospel of, oh, but praise the Lord that Jesus has obeyed for me. So there's a both and there that I feel like Piper didn't fully allow that to, to, to be heard, so to speak. He presented a false dichotomy, basically. Yeah, which um, it reminds me of a video uh, John Piper did with uh, Don Carson at, uh, at the Gospel Coalition. You know, it was one of those yeah. black and white round tables. And I think it was Don Carson, John Piper, and Tim Keller. And they're, yep. I, Don Carson and John Piper going back and forth between uh, should, should a preacher be uh, uh, under, deeply understanding the text or the culture? And John Piper's arguing, I want my preacher, if anything else, just in the text, just in the text, yeah. just in the text. And Carson's going, you're creating a false dichotomy. And is saying it exactly like that, right? You're, you're doing this, you're doing this. And it was just the two of them going back and forth about this. And Keller's just laughing looking at the yeah. two of them <laughs> yeah. yeah i i show that clip in one of my classes here at grace on uh on in, interpretation and uh i i every time i i show it i i think of um for some reason like the lord of the rings comes into my mind where it's like tim keller is 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 like the gandalf figure who's who's just sort of looking and like smiling and then you've got gimli and legolas arguing back and forth yeah. about something <laughs> that uh i i think that that's uh that's similar to what's going on here i mean piper is committed to the text and praise god for that and we yeah, need no more doubt. people who are like that um but um, any other areas of critique, we need to start winding down here, but any other areas of pushback that, that you wanted to mention before we, we move on? I don't know. I, I've been talking, some of my students listened to that and were, um, you know, super, super on board and, and really loved it. And I was just like, let's, let's pump the brakes a little bit. Let's, you know, yeah. let's remember that, that, um, Christ-centered, gospel-saturated preaching is is a good thing uh, and something to be uh, uh, held up and, and yeah. uh, honored. I think the only other point that I want to make sure we highlight here is, I think 
the way that Piper framed this um, doesn't take into account divine authorship enough. Meaning, I think that's a good point. Yeah, that when you when you so focus on um, the words and the phrases and the meaning that the author and he when he's saying author, he is saying the human author. He's he has in mind Paul or Peter or whoever the human author is. That um, I I don't think that he appropriately accounts for the divine authorship of scripture. And this is a huge topic that, you know, we could d d devote a whole episode to, but I I'm not saying that um, there's a, uh, that there's sort of a, well, there's the human meaning, human author's meaning, and then the divine author's meaning is like this radically different thing. Yeah. But what I am saying is that if we're going to take serious that, that God inspired the human authors, I think that you have to allow for based on what the Bible itself says, that the divine author can mean more than the human author can understand when writing the text. Mm -hmm. So that when Hosea or Isaiah is writing and God is inspiring them to, uh, to write down uh, these prophetic messages, that if you ask them in that moment, do you rec realize that this refers specifically to Jesus in a very specific way? I think the human authors would say, well, I think I, I understood that it was uh, referring to Messiah, but some of the specifics I wouldn't have known, but that's consistent with exactly what I wrote. And I think that's what a text like First uh, Peter 1, 10 through 12 talks about, where it portrays the the human human authors of scripture wrestling with trying to figure out inquiring what the spirit of christ was showing them and so i think that 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 he that piper doesn't quite account enough for um a divine authorship of scripture that a text can mean more not less but more than what the human author understood when writing it mm -hmm. Absolutely. No, that's a good word. Um, Doc, any, any resources you would recommend uh, on this topic where, where people could go read a bit more? The, first, the, the one that comes to mind for me is uh, Brian Chappell's Christ-Centered Preaching Book. Um, it's kind of a classic, a modern-day classic. Yep, that's, uh, that is absolutely the classic uh, in terms of preaching. Um, I think that, um, you know, Tim Keller has a has a book on preaching that has a chapter on this that's that's pretty good, um, and I think that uh, I'll recommend two books that are less about preaching but more about seeing Christ in all of Scripture. Uh, the first is by um, David Murray, called "Jesus on Every Page," that shows a variety of different ways that uh, different passages can point to Christ in the Gospel. And the second one is a book called. Um, how to read the Bible through the Jesus lens. And I think that's by, I think the author's last name is Wilkins. And that's a book by book, um, different, you know, so if you're reading Zechariah, you, you open the, the four pages on Zechariah and say, Oh, how, how does Zechariah point forward to Christ uh, in, in certain ways? So those are, those are two pretty entry level resources that any of our listeners, not just preachers, I think could, could use and benefit from. So. Okay, great. And we'll put those in the show notes and, uh, and make sure that uh, we have Amazon links there for you to, uh, to, to check on them. So 
Absolutely. So we're episode 16 here. We got to come up with an athlete. Which we did not talk about ahead of time. Not a single word. And I'm not um, happy with our choices. I'm just going to be up front with you. Okay. Uh, well, let, let's, let's go through them. Uh, what do you think about Joe Montana or 16? I mean, it's, it's hard to argue with his, is it, is it four Super Bowl rings that he has? Yeah, four or five, something like that. Yeah. I just hard. didn't like the 49ers. And, yeah. the fact, and, and also the fact this might not win us any additional listeners in our uh, region, but I'm not a Notre Dame fan either. So he had oh, two gosh. strikes against him. Yeah, you're actively trying to get rid of listeners for us. Thank you so much. Um, uh, uh, George Blanda is, is another one. Well before your, either of our times. Yeah. Do you, I, do you even know who that is? I recognize the name, uh, but I could not tell you what sport he played. He was a football player. Okay. He, was an, he, he played for the Oakland Raiders. Okay. And he I'm, was a, I imagine he was pretty good. <laughs> he, he was also, this is interesting, he was a quarterback. But he was also the kicker. Mm. So yes, just, I think I have seen that. He was he loved pressure, if I remember the old NFL films. And so loved being quarterback, loved being the kicker. Yes. Yeah. Um, Brett Hull, the uh, the hockey player. Yeah, I know no, almost nothing about him. Okay. And then uh, and then Dwight Gooden, who I'm I'm personally a big fan of. Uh, Doc. Yeah. Um, was was quite a good now, picture, picture there was the a there was a 30 for 30 on on him and uh daryl strawberry right oh yeah oh yeah and their their battle with uh addiction and all, all sorts of stuff yeah remind me now one of them has cleaned up his life more or less and the other hasn't i couldn't remember which one was it doc that's kind of cleaned up his life or was it daryl strawberry no daryl daryl's cleaned up his life uh for the, I mean, for the most part, he's, he's work, actually works with, uh, uh, in rehab with guys coming out of addiction um, and what it's going to take. Uh, Doc still from time to Doc, uh, Dwight Gooden, uh, from time to time will still like, oh, Doc was supposed to be at this event. He's disappeared. He, he must be on yeah. a, on a, uh, on a bender or something. So, yeah, in terms of uh, Ohio State uh, athletes wearing number 16, uh, Craig Krenzel, quarterback of the uh, national championship team uh, from 2002, I think it was. Uh, not an especially good quarterback. Brilliant academically. Um, I think he even went on to med school. Uh, hmm. And then JT Barrett, recent quarterback for Ohio State, who had a uh, arguably a, a, a complicated legacy at Ohio State. So yeah, It felt like he was there forever. Where's he at now? Is he in the pros somewhere? I think he is now with the Steelers on their either on their practice squad or something like that. Okay. All right. So um, I'm okay removing George Blanda and uh, Brett Hull uh, from the equation. Agreed. I, I I feel like it's down to Joe Montana and 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 Doc Gooden here. And I'm I'm good with Doc Gooden. I mean, I love I love putting up a Met. Uh, you know that, but I'm I'm not going to press if we if we want to go uh, with uh, with the greatness of Joe Montana. We could get some blowback. Okay, well, let, let's just remind our listeners that we are not claiming that this is that whoever we pick is the best person, the best player to ever wear that number. We're yeah. not saying that. We're just saying here are some people who've worn that number who are relatively good and famous, and here's who we wanted to pick. So. 
um, I'm I'm good with going with Doc Good. I'm I'm good with Doc as well. Yeah, I love it. The more Mets we can get in there, the better. Yeah, and bring people can bring on the uh, bring on you know, the, the hate. criticism. Yeah, the hate. So, um, all right. One thing you liked this week, John. All right. Uh, well, for the second time, I have finished the novel Brave New World. Um, so second time, I think in the last year that I've read that book. Yeah, good book. Um, and oh my goodness, it is so good uh, by uh, a guy named Huxley, uh, written 1920s, 1930s. Uh, yeah, it's about like It's about a future time uh, where we have, the, the family has gone away. Um, people are hatched and there's a class system and all these things. Uh, and, and, and the story is pretty interesting. Just, I, I think what's far more interesting is just the world uh, that he created. And yep. um, I think there are lots of parallels to today uh, that, that, that could be pulled uh, out of that. So I, I highly encourage it. Brave New World. Gotcha. Very dark read. Uh, yeah. but <laughs> how, about, how about yourself? Yeah, I'm going to go with um, my one thing I liked this week was the fact that uh, with, with both my boys home, we've started uh, doing golf shots in the backyard. Uh, so we'll put a, a five-gallon bucket at one end of the yard, and then we'll try to hit uh, golf balls into the bucket from, goodness, I bet that's probably uh, 35 yards away. Okay. Um, and uh, it's fun because uh, none of us are any good. <laughs> and uh we're using these uh for safety purposes we're using these like uh almost like nerf golf balls so, oh yeah i'm familiar yeah. yeah so um that way you know there's no real danger of cranking one and breaking somebody's window or denting their siding or something like that so uh it's been fun uh to do that with the boys but uh none of us are any good so yeah. and now my yard has uh a few more divots that i'm comfortable with one of my yeah. sons in particular uh, is prone to divot creation. Yeah, so. your, your, uh, your son with gusto. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So in any case, well, episode 16, 16 times we've done this now, John, for public consumption. Yeah. 16 weeks straight. Yeah. I don't think yeah, we've missed. Absolutely. We have not yet. We have not yet. Uh, yeah. We're not quite the Cal Ripken yet of the podcasting world, but uh, yeah. You know, every streak has to start start small, right? Yeah. Hmm. So, so we've co- accomplished our mission of uh, covering our various and sundry topics. And so, until next time, the Lord bless y'all real good. Later. Later.